0: Let us pray. Holy God, this Lenten season, send your spirit to us that the words we hear might be your words, that the thoughts we think might come from you, and that we might live faithfully in witness to your love to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's gospel lesson is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear these words of scripture. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put your Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, to him. Splendor, and he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And suddenly, angels came and waited on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if there's one thing we can learn from this gospel story, it's this. Never get into an argument with Jesus. You won't win. Can you just imagine Jesus and the devil up on a national debate stage? The devil mustering all the cleverness he's got, pulling out all of his best zingers and one-liners, cherry-picking scripture passages out of context in order to trick Jesus into saying or doing something foolish. Can you imagine the devil setting traps to lure him in, to lead him on, to reel him in growing ever more confident Of his ability to bring Jesus to his knees in front of the whole world. With his considerable debating skills, the devil thinks he has Jesus right where he wants him, and we think so too. Until the camera pans out, and as the scene widens, we see it is not Jesus at the precipice of defeat, it is his opponent the tempter, the personification of evil that Matthew calls the devil. Jesus gives the perfect comeback, the one that makes the crowd cheer with laughter and delight as the devil's face gets redder and redder and you think he's going to explode. It is, in fact, Jesus reeling the devil into his own trap, And you see Jesus whisper to himself with satisfaction, gotcha. That's the story we want. Jesus, the ultimate debater, the uber candidate, the winner. But dig deeply into the gospel story. That's not the one we get. Now, artists throughout the centuries have imagined Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and we could have a really interesting discussion on the ways that they depict the devil. Fascinating, but that's a topic for another day. What interested me were the pictures they paint of Jesus. In most of them, he's standing tall and upright, He looks with interest across the barren landscape that the devil shows him. And if he's not standing, at least he's sitting up straight. Maybe there's a halo around his head. In some, Jesus even has a physique with muscles as sculpted and defined as Michelangelo's statue of David. But listen closely. And that's not the story the gospel writer tells either. One line paints an entirely different picture, and it's this Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was famished. 40 days and 40 nights, 960 hours of fasting, 57,600 minutes with no food. This suggests to me a Jesus who cannot hold his head up, who can hardly lift a finger. This suggests a Jesus who has collapsed on the ground, weakened so severely he can barely get words out of his mouth. Imagine, if you will, the devil standing over him, holding stones that in Jesus' weakened, hallucinating state, sees as loaves of bread. Imagine the devil crouching down and saying, If you are indeed the Son of God, command these stones to become freshly baked, crusty on the outside, soft and chewy on the inside bread. And imagine, if you will, Jesus, using every ounce of meager strength he has left to lift his head and gasp, one does not live by bread alone. This is wilderness. This is when life is as hard as it's ever been. Wilderness is when life's unwanted detours suck every ounce of strength from you and leave you panting by the side of the road. Wilderness is where God is hard to find in the middle of whatever it is we are experiencing. Wilderness is where we're not even sure God is watching out for us. It's where we struggle to understand the purpose of whatever it is we're going through, and we're starving for something or someone, anything, to give it meaning. I suspect you know wilderness. Wilderness is where we struggle with who we are now, compared to how we've previously defined ourselves. It's where even the church struggles with who we are now, compared to how we have historically seen ourselves. Wilderness might even be a church in transition from what was to what will be. Even a church still waiting for an interim pastor to show up. As one writer said, times of hardship are when it's hardest to be the people of God. Wilderness is experiential and it is deeply theological. It leaves us with more questions than answers, especially questions that ask why, why me, why this, why not that? Wilderness is full of if only's, if only this, if only that. It strips away the pretense we try to keep up that we have it all together. Wilderness is the ultimate testing ground that rips off our mask of invincibility and exposes us for who we really are, vulnerable and weak and broken in every part of our being. This is the story that we are given to begin the somber season of Lent, Lent ritualizes the wilderness experience, giving us practice, if you will, for the wilderness that will surely come if it hasn't already. Lent isn't something we celebrate, it's something we observe. Forty days and nights plus Sundays of reflection and self examination, forty days and nights of confession and humility, forty days and nights like those Jesus spent in the wilderness. Now, I'll be honest, I struggle with the Gospel's notion that the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tested. What's that about? I have trouble with extrapolating that detail into a broader worldview that God would somehow deliberately lead us to desert places, because I think we do a good enough job of that on our own. And even for those who do buy into that, I'm not sure that's the function of this story in Matthew's larger theological narrative because it makes it all about us. Because it's not. It's about who Jesus is. God with us in our human frailties and imperfections. For even the tempter recognizes it's the very Son of God that dwells with us in the wilderness. And it's the Son of God himself who refuses to throw off his human limitations in order to catch a break. He could have used his divine privilege to call on the angels to rescue him. He could have put his power on full display if he would only worship the devil, he could have turned the stones into a whole bakery full of fresh bread to alleviate his hunger. Why not take a shortcut? Melissa Bain-Sevier asks, why not take a shortcut if you can and meet those needs faster? Why not indeed? Because it's the work that goes into the bread that makes it meaningful and delicious enough to feed both body and soul. Bread takes time, she says. Place seed in the ground. Wait for rain and sun, weed and harvest, thresh and preserve, grind, add ingredients, knead, bake, serve, enjoy. Take leftover seed and place in the ground and repeat. It's the work that goes into the bread that makes it meaningful. Wilderness has been part of the story of God's people throughout Scripture. It doesn't take much to connect the dots between Jesus' 40 days and nights in the wilderness, with Noah's 40 days and nights on the ark before the floodwaters receded, or with the 40 days and nights Moses fasted while on Mount Sinai, inscribing the Ten Suggestions, I mean the Ten Commandments, or the 40 days and nights Elijah fasted in the desert before his new commission, or the number of years that the Israelites wandered in the desert, sustained by bread from heaven before they reached the promised land. Throughout scripture, the wilderness is a place of preparation of waiting for what God is going to do next, a place to learn to trust God, because you have no other choice. Jesus put himself in the middle of this wilderness storyline, which is never wilderness, end of story, full stop. This storyline is always, as another writer put it, a journey home to the heart of God. Regardless of how we get to the wilderness, whether things happen that are beyond our control, or whether through our own failures we find ourselves there, the witness of scripture virtually shouts out that it's not God's intent to leave us there. It is God's intent, God's deep desire, and especially God's very nature to bring us out. So why not take a shortcut? because there are gifts to be found in the wilderness journey even when we cry out of the depths of our hearts. God refuses to be limited by our circumstances even as Jesus refused to be constrained or manipulated by the evil one. Now I can't tell you where you will find them but I can tell you where I have found them. I found them in the wilderness of grief, the love shown by this faith community and the incredible power of Scripture's promise that nothing in life or death can ever separate us from the love of God. I found gifts in the wilderness of disappointment and betrayal, experiences that have helped and still help me in my vocation. I've even found gifts in the wilderness of waiting, where Jesus sits beside me in my exasperated impatience, foregoing the easy answers and letting me struggle to discover something deeper. So how do we endure the journey? What is the bread that will sustain us in the barrenness, whether it's the ritual enactment of Lent, or whether it's the real thing. Walter Brueggemann suggests we, like Jesus, are put there seemingly empty-handed, but in fact, not empty-handed. He had the book of Deuteronomy with him. That's where all of Jesus' snappy responses came from. He had his Bible with him. He had the whole deep resource of faith memories that are old and trusted and reliable. He was not out there alone, but in the company of many ancient, faithful, trusted voices that told him who he was. Jesus refused the food of death that would have robbed him of his identity. And now comes the bread of life. Even the devil knew Jesus needed to eat. Surely God knows we do too. We need bread for this journey, bread that is warm and crusty on the outside and is soft and chewy on the inside. God has given us this bread in the stories of God's faithfulness, the stories that sustained Jesus, will also sustain us if we dare to draw from them the memories of what God has done before. We need the bread that comes from the faithful, trusted people of God gathered together right here, praying and singing and upholding one another. We need the bread of life given to us in Jesus himself, the bread we will eat and the cup of salvation that we will drink At Christ's table of grace as Jill Duffield says in our bulletin cover quote we need to eat but we are sustained not just by the bread but by the love with which it is made and given eat the bread of life Drink the cup of salvation. It will sustain you your entire journey through the wilderness and back out of it, home to the heart of God. Amen.